Welcome to the Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom, and the hashtag, The Virtual Shift. We have two very special guests on our program today. This month, actually, I am going to be speaking about ACOs. Today, we have the National Association of ACOs uh, on the program, very specifically, uh, Aisha Pittman, she's the F- Senior Vice President of Government Affairs at the National ACOs. And we also have Robert Daly, the Director of Legislative Affairs at the National Association of ACOs. Aisha and Robert, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you. Awesome. So let's uh, let's start with uh, the framework, or the, the fundamentals, uh, the baseline, if you will, relative to uh, accountable care organization. Tell us a little bit, Aisha, tell us a little bit about the National Association of ACOs. Who are they and what's their importance in this model? Yeah. So thanks again for having us. Um, the National Association of ACOs, or NACOs, represents more than 400 ACOs that participate in the Medicare models. That's about, uh, you know, like three quarters of the the, t- the full ACO program. So the Medicare Share Savings Program and ACO Reach. While we count our membership based on participation in the Medicare models, our members are really thinking about transforming uh, healthcare across lines of business. So while they are in these risk arrangements in Medicare, they're also doing the same um, in Medicare Advantage risk arrangements and with commercial employer payers and um, even some direct to employer arrangements. Our aim as an association is just to bring folks together to share best practices and to advocate on behalf of the movement to value. Awesome. And so you talk about accountable care. Spend a little bit, a couple minutes on what is accountable care for the audience members that might be joining for the first time and trying to get a handle on what this new verbiage is about. Not necessarily new verbiage, but what, what is accountable care and the constructs of a delivery of care model? Yeah, I think um, while we've been at this for over a decade, the the terms all blur together. So if I think about accountable care or value-based care, what we're really referring to is providers coming together and coordinating care across the continuum and while also maintaining financial risks for those patient populations. So the Medicare ACOs are one version of that where it is a total cost of care, so all services for the patient that they are at financial risk. We have other value models like bundled payments that are for an episode of care. And then um, when we look at the value-based contracting with Medicare Advantage or other payers, they don't necessarily always use the term ACO, even though it's a similar contract to the Medicare models. Interesting. So, Aisha, what is your role uh, within the association? Yeah, so I lead government affairs, uh, thinking, you know, strategically um, across a few core pillars, ensuring that our members, first ensuring that our members can be successful in the existing models, then thinking about how we can support our members with their, you know, broader set of other payer arrangements. Some of that is advocacy, some of that is thought leadership. So just as we're doing here, trying to get the word out, make it more understandable to the full healthcare continuum. While we've seen a lot of progress and more providers coming into value-based care, there's still a huge gap. And so 
part of our role is also what are the policies and things that we can get into place that will encourage more providers to go into value arrangements. Awesome. And Robert, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and your role. Sure. Uh, great to be here, Tom. Appreciate you having us on the on the program. Uh, I'm Robert Daly. I'm the director of legislative affairs here at the National Association of ACOs. My general function here at the organization is to sort of keep tabs on what Congress is doing or not doing on a given base uh, on, on a given day. A lot of what associations and trade groups do is they advocate not only to the uh, administration about you know, policies and regulations that need to be changed for their members to be successful, uh, but that you also have to, you know, advocate to the legislature and members of Congress. Some associations do that at only the federal level, which is what we do. Some do it at the state level. But one of the key things to to really keep in mind when you're talking about healthcare or value-based care overall is that Congress is really the driving engine of a lot of these changes. So when you look at programs like Medicare Advantage, ACOs, even the Medicare program at its at its core, these are all programs that were created by Congress, that are overseen by Congress. And at the end of the day, they have the ability to change these programs, create these programs. So really one of the things that we do is we're c- continuously talking and educating them about how you know different laws and, and regulations impact providers, how they impact patients and, and access and quality of care. And one of the biggest things that they're always focusing on is how do we start to bend the cost curve? So one of the things that we're always trying to do is educate about how value-based care is, you know, improving patient quality, improving access, as well as bringing down costs and starting to bend that cost curve. Because one of the biggest challenges that uh, members of Congress have is trying to address overall government spending, which continues to increase national deficits, continue to increase healthcare spending is one of the the biggest areas that that's happening in. So um, really trying to change the way that that you know, providers and and clinicians are caring for patients is really critical. So what we do on a regular basis is really educate those members of Congress about how these programs are working or not working and what needs to be done, making sure that there's, you know, appropriate physician payments in place. And the biggest challenge is that many of the members of Congress that were originally in Congress when programs like Medicare Advantage were created or when the ACOs were created at, you know, sort of the uh, early 2010s, many of those members of Congress have left. You know, there have been a lot of changes over the last 10, 15, 20 years in healthcare policy, and there's only a handful of members that are still there. Many of the doctors that are in Congress are retiring. So we're continuously educating members of Congress about these programs so that they understand the impacts and can make, you know, rational decisions about how to move forward and make them better. Yeah, uh, very interesting. Uh, at the macro level, I was reading a report last night where the projection was a 5% increase in cost at the federal level in 2024. And there's obviously other studies out there that you have, you know, there are more consumers today with uh, diabetes than yesterday, more consumers today than yesterday that have a cardio issue, a respiratory issue. I would think from a Congress perspective, uh, they're thinking, hey, what's wrong? I'm not saying that there's not a lot of, because there is a, a lot of very good things happening in healthcare relative to the tenants of value, increasing the quality of care while reducing the uh, the cost of care. But the, from a macro level, the, the, the curves are still there, right? From a legislative perspective, uh, without doing a whole new president care package, what do you think the, the, the key legislative needs are in order to uh, invoke transformational change? 
I'll say one thing is that we know that value is working. And so if we look at, you know, the accountable care models, they have shifted costs over time. They have created savings. If you modeled out and looked at if you got all beneficiaries or all patients into that type of model, we would have a much larger percentage of, of savings and be able to bend the cost curve more. Um, I think there are two things that point to it. There was a CBO report that looked at the, the spending of healthcare and those reductions. Some of it is attributed to things that happen in value-based care, like better care management. And then like if we look at national health expenditures, we have lowered the growth curve. The spending is going to grow some, like we know that, but how do we uh, shift the curve? And so I think our biggest at a macro level is how do we get more patients into value arrangements? Because that is proven to to change the growth curve. So that's a good that's a good point. So CMS establishes objective by 2030 to have all Medicare providers uh, in a risk bearing model. Uh, so therefore, the 1.1 million providers today that are in a fee for service model would shift over to a value oriented delivery of care model. Do you think that that is kind of the, uh, do we have enough in place, if you will, that will allow that provider to feel comfortable and confident that they can take on a risk bearing contract in order to achieve the objectives that you talked about, Robert? Yeah, I I can start out with a little bit of sort of the high level view. So, you know, over the last like 10 years, we've seen a pretty significant shift and growth in specifically the ACO program. When we talk about value-based care, um, there's really kind of like a, a two-track system, well, three-track system in, in Medicare. You've got your standard fee-for-service that are not in any kind of value arrangement. That's a, roughly about maybe 20 million uh, beneficiaries. Then you have the ACOs, which uh, you know encompass about 13 million Medicare beneficiaries that are in standard fee-for-service. And then you've got everybody in the managed care side, which is, you know, roughly, you know, it's about half or a little bit over half of the Medicare population that are in a Medicare Advantage type plan. So they're sort of being managed, at least having some sort of coordination from the insurance companies. And then the ACOs are the the second largest function in the fee-for-service system that are really kind of providing that better quality care like that Aisha talked about earlier, where you've got hospitals and physicians being incentivized to work together to be able to coordinate that care across the continuum to make sure that you're, you know, having a primary care physician, that you have them kind of being your care manager through the journey, that you have, you know, care management teams in place to track high utilization and make sure that those patients are getting the care that they need. The program has really seen significant growth, but it's sort of stagnated over the last, you know, five years. But we've seen the program grow to, you know, as I mentioned, about 13 million beneficiaries. There's about 600,000 clinicians that are participating in ACOs. So it is a, a significant size of uh, across the country. We have ACOs in just about every single state now. Even places like Wyoming and Alaska are starting to see this uptake. So even places that have very rural populations are starting to see the benefits of some of this transformational change um, that clinicians are usually at the heart of. So, you know, when you look at the size, I mean, there's about 1,400 hospitals across the country that are participating in these programs, 4,400 federally qualified health centers, you know, 2,200 rural health clinics. So we're really seeing a very vast number of clinicians that are starting to get into them. And over that time, we have seen a lot of them start to progress to, to risk-based models. So there's, you know, over 60% now are, are participating in risk-based models. So really, you know, one of the things that CMS has put in place is a, is a roadmap 
and sort of an on-ramp for you to get to a risk-based model. So you start sort of at the beginning phases of being in a, an ACO where there's you know upside only risk. So that means that you know if if you don't hit your financial targets for the first year or two, you're not going to be penalized, and you learn how to participate over a, a, a couple of years, and then you can sort of build into it. But that's sort of the overall trajectory of where we're starting to things go. And really, what what the goal of this is is to start rewarding quality over the volume of care. You know, the fee-for-service system was always built on doing more, and that was the way that physicians have been trained for so many years. And the goal here is to try and change that. It's really kind of turning an ocean liner in a very tight space because you're trying to take a, a, a long-term sort of business model and incentivize people to do less work, spend more time with patients, but then also try to make sure that they're being compensated fairly and still making enough money through their business to be able to continue to practice. You know, as you know, I'm in the uh, the virtual care uh, business, so remote patient monitoring, chronic care management, remote therapeutic monitoring are all very compelling models in my view, whether you're in a fee-for-service or accountable care. And, and it's not just about the program, right? I can measure my blood pressure for 16 days, thumbs up, I get reimbursed. But what we often find is, well, why is your blood pressure high? Oh, you're not on your meds let's get on your meds or let's change your meds, right? And then that uh, that activity reduces emergency room visits. That activity reduces hospitalization. There's a lot of value in the way in which you can deliver fee-for-service. I think what what's interesting to me is that we don't see a lot of ACOs adopting remote patient monitoring and chronic care because there's a funding mechanism that is that is that that is blocking that activity. Can you give us some insights as to the legislative? Aisha, I'll uh, ask this of you. What is that blockage, and how do we clear the way? Yeah, I think I'll start off by saying ACOs are use virtual care, and prior to the pandemic, had more flexibilities around telehealth and remote patient monitoring than any provider and fee for service. The thought is, if you are accountable for total cost of care and quality, we don't need the fee for service parameters that are um, monitoring for fraud, waste, and abuse. If you're risk accountable, you're going to make sure that that patient has the right outcomes, but then you're also going to do all the work to ensure that they're getting the right care at the right place at the right time. So you use levers like virtual care and remote patient monitoring to support the patient. That's always been a tenant in in ACOs and other value models. Um, Telehealth flexibilities have been there from, from the start. Why we don't see them using them, it gets to how we track things that are are in care. So um, if we look at like remote patient monitoring or the chronic care management, those codes have a patient cost sharing. And the ACO is trying to like, it's it's much harder to provide this service for a patient and where they're going to have to pay more out of, out of pocket dollars. What we'd like to see in an ACO is, is the concept of shifting the beneficiary cost sharing. There is a provision in the program in the Medicare Share Servings program now that allows that, but it's too blunt of an object. It says if you uh, engage in patient cost sharing, which means the ACO would waive the cost share for the patient and the ACO pays that cost sharing piece to Medicare, you have to do it for all patients rather than sort of saying, we're going to run a disease management program in diabetes. And for our diabetic patients, we're going to waive cost sharing for these sets of services. We don't have that flexibility right now. 
I think what is occurring is ACOs are still doing these services. They're just not billing Medicare for them so that they don't have to charge the patient a copay. So this gets to why we, when we're talking about ACOs and their overall savings, and when we look at the program and it's like, oh, it saved four or 5% a year. And people are like, well, that's a drop in the bucket. We're not tracking all of the care that providers and ACOs are doing and not billing. So often they're taking what they get in shared savings and reinvesting it into things like building out some of their virtual care programs, but that just doesn't get billed to Medicare. It's captured in like sort of their shared savings. So we don't have, this is where we don't have good insight of how much ACOs are truly saving costs. Yeah. So you're talking about a beneficiary who ultimately has a copay. And yep. and not having that copay and not having them pay that copay in order to get that type of service. So that's a conflict in the regulatory structure, I'll say, uh, relative to how to. But an ACO could implement the program, but just not follow the fee for service model, if you will, right? Yep. Not exactly. uh, so. Then attribution comes into play, I would think, right? You need to have very definitive causation, meaning I did provide remote monitoring. And it did improve, it had a direct result on improving medication adherence. It had a direct cause on a reduction of uh, emergency room visits and hospitalizations. If you can't have that attribution or demonstrate that attribution specifically about your program, then it's not likely that, uh, because there might be other factors that were influencers. And that's fine, right? At the end of the day, what's the overall cost of care and how do we improve in the quality of care and ultimately the stabilization and the, uh, the state of wellness for that patient and, and therefore have a re- reflective savings. Am I thinking about this in the in a, yep. in a right way? Exactly. So I think what we can say about ACOs, and this is the education that we try to do to members of Congress, is ACOs are providing a lot of care that we're not capturing in the, the fee-for-service billing. Because they have that flexibility, and they have a pocket of funds through their shared savings or through the advanced APM incentives, they take those funds and a strong portion of it just is reinvested in patient care. So if they're building a disease management program and that disease management has some remote patient monitoring aspects, that's never getting built to, to Medicare, but it is coming back to the patient. If they are, you know, providing rides to appointments or they are, um, exactly, you know, per, like helping provide meal services to patients. None of that is captured in what Medicare can see. And I think if we're really going to get the movement to value going, we have to, one, tell those stories better, which we are trying to do, but then also try to, like, get more data about that. We have it anecdotally from our members, but there's not sort of any national where has all of the dollars from shared savings and um, the advanced investment payments gone? We're doing some work to try to capture that of our members to better tell that story of we're, we're putting these, these dollars are going back to the patient and um, creating new services. Yeah. So you have these ACOs out there and they're working collaboratively on uh, the tenants of uh, value-based care. And then you have these providers uh, that are going to be asked to uh, participate in a value-based contract, but I'm just going to say for now, they're not in any organization, if you will. One could say that they're part of an IPA. How how does an independent provider work in the same mindset as an ACO with, with with the assets of an ACO 
and and still achieve value, if you will. What 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 more do we need to do to make sure that that independent provider is as successful as a group organization such as a ACO in in 2020 in 2030 when they're under a value-based care contract? Robert, thoughts? So one of the things that I would would highlight is that you know the ACO model really allows a lot of independent clinicians to kind of sort of test the waters in value-based care and slowly come into these models. You know, so like every ACO is is sort of a little bit different. You know, you've got your hospital-based systems, but you also have a lot that are sort of independent physician practices that come together. Um, And there's a lot of different organizations. Some of them are our members that are sort of what are known as convener organizations that have, you know, sort of teams of policy individuals or, you know, sort of folks that understand how these, you know, systems work and, and really kind of help those independent clinicians come into value-based care models. So we do see a lot of ACOs where you'll have, you know, individual tax identification number practices in the ACO. They continue to be independent, but they're able to harness and sort of work within sort of that larger ACO system to be able to use the technology and the data analytics. So it's really kind of a, a collaborative environment. So that's one of the things where, you know, sort of independent clinicians can start to come into them, you know, so finding ones that are in sort of their regional area, looking at ones that have been successful and, and sort of coming in and learning from clinicians that have been doing this for a number of years that have been successful. You hit a key topic, and that's a show in and of itself, data analytics. You have to have access to the data. Today, uh, with all due respect to a, to a physician, because I always think they are the smartest people in the room, but the point there being is you can't, you know, if I were, if I were a physician and I said, hey, I got to generate more revenue for my practice this year, right? Their only natural reaction is to tread faster on the, on the, on the wheel, right? And to generate more reimbursements because it's under fee-for-service. It's the only way you can do it. But you spend less time with your patients and you're not necessarily achieving value. You just, it's it's a volume model, right? So thinking strategically and having access to the data is really key. Uh, Aisha, your thoughts? Yep. The data is completely key. The, the benefit of an ACO in the Medicare sense is that you are able to uh, get enhanced data. So Medicare will provide all of the claims data for the patients attributed to your ACO, and those feeds are produced monthly, and they have been working to speed them up to get them even faster. Um, so ACOs have a really unique view into data um, across the continuum in a comprehensive way. And this, to back to Rob's point about sort of independent providers, there is a piece of changing care and because you're doing data analytics that it's really hard to do on your own. So when you can link up with others and often what we see is the ACO is doing a lot of that behind the scenes analytic, creating reports and dashboards and and pushing that out to all of their practices that are working with them in the ACO. And then those practices can look at that and think about what interventions that they need to to take place. So that enhanced data analytics is really key. I do think right now we're in a place of really thinking about how we leverage the the EMR data a little bit more as uh, that data is becoming uh, more interoperable and CMS is moving to collect quality measures that are driven from the EMR data. There, we still have an uphill battle there, but I think that's going to really enhance the data analytic capacity once you can combine that claims data with the EMR data. And we do have some some members that are doing that, but it's just not as 
far as long as we would would hope, but um, it provides even greater insights and really helps think about how you should target those interventions. Yeah, actually, next month I'm uh, ha- having some uh, QHINs on. Uh, John Blair from MedAllies, who was a approved QHIN, uh, we're going to talk about that uh, that data flow and the value. I'm really excited about what uh, what they're doing in that front. Uh, and I do agree with you 100%. You're spot on around how, how that's a new element that's coming into the fray. How do we couple that with the EHR? And and how do we, again, be more strategic in thinking about that person across the, the model, not just what happens in my brick and mortar, but what happens in all the brick and mortars, if you will, of the, uh, that patient might visit in, in a given year. So uh, while the primary care may not be the cardiologist, knowing what the cardiologist is, has done and is doing is important uh, relative to the, uh, the overall care. So we have a minute left. Just a real quick 2024, it's a tough year legislatively. It's, a, it's an election year. A, a lot of people on the stump. What, what's your number one goal with legislation this year? So our biggest objective right now is, is really working to try and work with members of Congress to ensure that physician payments remain adequate. You know, I know a lot of the physician organizations are really concerned about the Medicare cuts that went into place at the beginning of this year. Uh, We're working very hard to try and get Congress to reauthorize and extend the advanced APM incentive payments that are available for those clinicians that move into risk-based payment models. Um, That has been really kind of one of the the key things that has driven some of this uh, transformational change and moving more providers into those risk-based models where they, quote, have skin in the game. Those, you know, technically expired at the end of 2023. So the ability to continue to earn those is is now kind of expiring. So we're working with Congress to try and extend those. The hope is that that can be done in the next couple of weeks before they pass the next budget bill. But um, there's a lot of moving pieces that, that we're working through with members of Congress and sort of all their different priorities that they're working on. And I would say our um, quick long-term priorities is after we can get these initial provisions extended, we want to take a step back and think about We've been at this for 12 years. How do we really achieve that 2030 goal? What else needs to be done? There's some challenges with the current incentive structure and and in the MIPS program for those who aren't in an APM that are still in, in fee-for-service. How do we change all of those things so that it does truly encourage the movement to value? Let's take the lessons learned from the current structure and rethink it. And while that likely won't happen this year, we want to just get Congress to start to have those discussions about what does it look like for the future? We're in a place where we're constantly coming back to get adequate physician payment. How do we stabilize physician payment long-term? And then as a part of that long-term solution, how do we um, encourage more providers to get into value-based care arrangements? Awesome. I'm going to have to uh, leave it there. I want to thank you both for uh, participating in the uh, in the discussion. Aisha, if you ever need, uh, and even Robert, if you ever need any assistance helping uh, advocate your efforts and getting your word out, please reach out. I'd be more than happy uh, to help, uh, not just on the virtual shift, but in general. But uh, nonetheless, thank you for participating in uh, today's show and look forward to working with you in the future. Thanks for having us. That's today's shift. I appreciate the audience taking the time to tune in. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune back in at the healthcarenowradio.com at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern throughout the week. And be sure to check out the program page at thevirtualshift.co. As well, remember to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter at Foley Tom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Shift. I'm Tom Foley. 
until the next shift.